The following is a message by Dr. James Renahan from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. If you have a Bible, please turn to... Luke chapter 17, Luke 17, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him who ha- when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. The kingdom of God is not what we expect. We tend to approach it and consider it in light of our own lives and circumstances. We take what we know of this life and assume that the kingdom of God is a better version of what we experience here. Maybe the best, or actually I thought maybe the worst example of this, is the way that people view heaven. They think of it as a place full of enjoyment the reward for the disappointments of this life. We'll have the best food and drink, beautiful homes, great golf courses or beaches or gardens or skiing or whatever you happen to like, and we will enjoy them forever to the glory of God. But is that what heaven is really about? No, it isn't. The best and the greatest reward of heaven is God himself, to live and move in his presence with great happiness forever. And this makes all of the luxuries of life that we imagine to be in heaven worthless. When we have Christ, what could be better? But this is only only an example. It suggests how our thought processes are bound up with this life. Far too often our eyes are turned downward to this world and we let it define for us the nature of the kingdom of God. So that the kingdom of God becomes a grander form of what we know here. And we expect God to act according to our knowledge and do what we would do. And this was exactly the same problem for Jesus' disciples when they walked with him in his ministry. I suppose that in some sense we may take comfort that our problem is their problem as well. But we must learn that their remedy must be our remedy also. You see, the kingdom of God is really topsy-turvy. 
It's not a mirror image of this world, nor is it, is it a greater and expanded version of our lives and expectations. It is a new and different world. Jesus' disciples had to learn this, and for them, it was a long and slow process. I, I think about the fact that even as our Lord Jesus is ascending into heaven, they ask him a question. Is this the time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? It took them a long time. And we must take a long time to learn it as well. It may be just as long and just as slow. Now look with me at the words of verse 5 in Luke chapter 17. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Why did they say this? Well, we have to think through the context. If you read the Gospel of Luke carefully, you'll notice that sometimes he gives us markers which help us to think through the context of various incidents. Verse 11 of chapter 17 marks the beginning of a new section and thus the end of our section. But we might ask the question, where does our section begin? Now, various possibilities present themselves. Perhaps the best one is to look back to chapter 15 and verse 1. In fact, we have a series of markers from 15.1 all the way through 17.10 that give us some information. In 15.1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. 16.1, he also said to his disciples, 16.14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him and he said to them, 17.1, he said to his disciples, 17.5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If I'm right in seeing that 15.1 is a marker, then everything in chapters 15, 16, and 17 are part of our section And really, our text is the climax of the incident that is recorded here. Now, what do we find in this larger context? Well, let me summarize it for you because we don't have time to look in any detail. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, we have the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Jesus challenges the Pharisees and the scribes about their criticism of his teaching sinners. Jesus comes to save sinners not the righteous. In 15.11 through 33, we have the story of the prodigal son, a story that describes to us God's mercy to sinners and the hypocrisy of the self-righteous. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, we have the parable of the unjust steward showing the evil of the love of money. In chapter 16, verses um, 14 through 31, We have the beginning of and the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar who enjoys the kingdom of God while the wealthy man is set to torment. And verse 15 of chapter 16 is a key text for the point that I want to make. He said to them, Jesus said to the Pharisees who were lovers of money, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus makes the point there. When we come to chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, we learn about the importance of a forgiving spirit over and over again. Now, all of this is relevant. 
remember that Jesus' disciples would have been raised in a religious culture that was dominated by the scribes and the Pharisees. And the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees would have been the accepted doctrine of the day. And as Jesus was speaking in this context, he was challenging and overturning these dominant and accepted ideas in the religious culture of the day. Jesus had won the confidence of the disciples. They did not challenge him. But as he offered different perspectives on all of these issues, as he talked about God's concern for sinners and rejection of the righteous, about the evils of the love of money, about the mercy that God extends not to the rich but to beggars, about the judgment to come on those who offend the weak, about forgiveness as a way of life, even his disciples were astounded. He was overturning their view of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven was not what the scribes and the Pharisees said. It was completely different from their expectation. And all that they could say in response was, Lord, increase our faith. I wonder what it would have been like to observe them. Did their faces give evidence of astonishment as they listened to Jesus? Were they puzzled to hear him say that the ethics of the kingdom of God were so very different from everything they had been taught? At least we may say this. Their response was the correct one. Lord, increase our faith. What is faith? Is it a blind venture into the future, a leap? I think that's how most people in our culture today would describe it. Is it a mindless pursuit of a goal set before you like a mouse placed in a track with food at the end? Sometimes this is how people think. But faith is trust. Faith involves understanding and agreement and acceptance. Faith involves the mind and it involves the will. Faith is based on what God says. It seeks to understand God's revelation, to recognize the truth of that word from God, and then acts appropriately. You see, faith is not blind. Faith is actually full of light. But it often calls us to reorder our thinking so that we view life not according to what we know and observe in this world, but rather according to what God tells us in his word. Increase our faith. It's a humble prayer, isn't it? Think about what these disciples were requesting from the Lord. First, It was a prayer that was directed to the Lord. The text says, the apostles said to the Lord. They recognized that only he could grant them their petition. He is the one who has just given them a new perspective on basic issues. He is teaching them that God's ways are not the same as man's ways. And they hear him, and they believe him, and they ask him for help. As they realize their own ignorance and their own inadequacy, They turn to him, and so also must we. I wonder, are we any different? Do we ever think about the kingdom of God and and assume that it is like the present world, only better? We need this prayer. Notice that this prayer is spoken by the apostles. It's very interesting to pay attention to the flow of thought in chapters 15, 16, and 17. 15 and 16 seem primarily to be addressed to the Pharisees and the scribes. Even the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples there are responded to by the scribes and the Pharisees. When we come to 17.1, we read that he speaks to his disciples. 
In 17.5, we read that it's his apostles who respond to him. You see, there is a movement from opponents to followers, and it's the followers who hear the application, and then finally to the apostles. A movement even to those who are closest to him. The foundation stones of the kingdom. And they recognize, as they listen to Jesus, how little they know and how challenging the truth of the kingdom of God can be. If the apostles needed to pray this prayer, how much more do we need to pray this prayer? The third thing I want you to notice is that this prayer is a corporate prayer. The text in English and in Greek is quite clear. The apostles, plural, said to the Lord, increase our faith. They did not one by one say, increase my faith. But together they spoke to the Lord. They recognized that this was a fault and a need that they shared together. Is this true of us? Of course it is. Do we each need to grow in faith? Yes, but that's not the point. It is rather that together the people of God need to grow in faith and together express that faith. See, this is vital to corporate prayer. We do not come together to pray as individuals. We pray together as churches. And our faith as churches needs to be increased. Fourthly, this prayer is a profound acknowledgement of weakness. Not necessarily of sin, just of human weakness. The disciples were astonished. Jesus' teaching turned their world on its head, but they knew that he was right. And the only thing that could help them reorder their minds was for the Lord to increase their faith, faith in his word, so that they might understand the nature of the heavenly kingdom. They greatly desired to grow in the things of God, to reject the love of money, to show mercy to the poor, to live a life of forgiveness. And they knew that the only way to do this was to ask the Lord to increase this grace. Because faith does not belong to this world. It belongs to Christ's kingdom. And that's why they addressed their Savior. Lord, increase our faith. Fifthly, notice that this prayer is about faith. To emphasize this point, it is a grace that is given from above. We don't work it up here. You can't purchase it at a store or acquire it from a book. God grants faith. Or more specifically here, the Lord Jesus must increase faith. You see, the apostles knew that they needed to listen more carefully to Jesus' words, to understand them better, to accept their wisdom rather than the current teaching of the culture in which they lived. And they needed to act based on this increased faith. It's really a thoroughly Christ-centered prayer, isn't it? Because it calls Jesus to make the disciples more heavenly-minded. At this moment, they realized just how profound their need really was. And I wonder, do we realize it as well? Sixthly, the result of this prayer is growth in the kingdom of God. Notice again verses 6 through 10. Our English texts hide the corporate nature of verse 6. If you, plural, 
have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus speaks to the apostles as a group. He does not mean that faith allows people to do as they please, move the tree. If you have faith, you can do these things. But rather that when Christ's people together exercise their faith, great things happen in the kingdom of God. The apostles learned this lesson. This is the reality of the church in Jerusalem. They prayed together and the kingdom of God was to grow. They grew by the prayer of faith, asking God to do what he promised. Trusting in the revelation that God gives, what God says. Moving a tree is nothing, but seeing God at work is far better. Verses 7 to 10, we ask the question, what are they about? Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him who has come in from the field, come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. What is this about? It's about a life without faith. We are to do everything that is commanded. Verse 10 tells us that. But friends, we cannot bring about growth of the kingdom. Only God can do this. We may be unprofitable servants, but he is able to do much. In fact, the servant ought to disappear so that the master is glorified. Yes, we must do our duty, but we must cry out to him to do far more. When we pray, increase our faith, we're asking for an increase in our understanding of God and his ways as that is revealed in scripture. We're asking for a change of perspective in our own lives so that we see things God's way and not our own way. And we are asking God to work powerfully according to the promise that he himself has revealed. See, Luke 17, 5 is a call to us because we are just like Jesus' disciples and we're not even apostles. If they needed to cry out to the Lord for an increase of faith, how much more do we? How much of the world's thinking has influenced our views of Christ's church and his kingdom? How much more must we learn of his, will, of his will. Shouldn't we, with all humility, join the apostles in this prayer? And shouldn't we expect the Lord to answer? Shouldn't we expect him to hear us? Shouldn't we expect him to do his will among us? See, we need to look at this text and consider it and then put it into practice. Let's be like them. Let's be disciples who look to Jesus Christ our Lord and cry out to him, Lord, increase our faith, overturn our unbelief, and help us and our churches to live as examples in this world of the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our prayer is very simple. Forgive our sins 
and increase our faith. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.